In Case You Missed It with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. My husband have both had it, but our kids range from 12 to 17 and they're very reluctant to get it. They're a bit scared, I think, of the whole thing. I would prefer probably for them to have it, but I would hate for them to be scared to have it. Will you leave it up to them or will you decide in the end? That's the big decision, I think, yeah. We'll, we'll have a little talk with them, I think, and try and talk them into it, but I wouldn't, definitely wouldn't force them into it. Well, our youngest did pick it up in school, so she's already had it, so I would feel a little bit more relaxed about her. But the other two, the older ones going back to school, would probably be a little bit nervous. Again, I suppose I would leave it up to themselves, but I would try to encourage them, I think. I think it's a good idea. I'm a bit nervous about it. What would you be nervous about when it comes to getting the vaccine? I don't know. I think it's more about the needle. Would you like to get the vaccine? I probably will at some stage. I've already had COVID. How did you feel when you got COVID? It just felt a bit miserable. I've lost my sense of smell but my taste is back. It's just been a bit confusing because people can smell things that I can't smell. (laughs) I hope myself comes back some stage. So as a parent I I definitely think I wouldn't be too confident in kids getting it right now. From an adult perspective we're doing it because we kind of feel like we have to. If they wanted to get it would you allow them? If they wanted to get then I couldn't say no to that. As a grandparent, I think it's a very good idea, but I think in them being so young, it's a big concern. Would you feel more comfortable if the grandkids had it for your safety? I would go along with the uh, young parents. I would definitely be on their side, you know. It's a concern for all us adults to be taking at the moment, but we're doing it Mm -hmm. for the good of the universe. So I would feel safer that the younger 15-year-old school children do not have it at the moment. Mm-hmm. I have a daughter 14 and I don't think she will be getting it. She doesn't really want it and that's her wish and I'd stand by that 100%. Simply because initially when this pandemic kicked off, the big push was for protecting elderly and the vulnerable. The majority of the elderly and vulnerable have been protected, so why would you need to vaccinate kids? Elaine Smith reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, did you know the first Tokyo Olympics was held in 1964? And it had some remarkable athletes. Here's Pat Kenny and Simon Tierney. Now, it's probably not surprising if one was to look back at the way Japan was emerging in the world as a leader in certain technologies. I mean, every transistor radio that people had um, was made in Japan, that kind of thing. So it's not surprising that the 64 Games introduced loads of new technology. Not surprising at all, Pat. Through, uh, they did a collaboration with NASA and they used a satellite to broadcast the Games live around the world, which was the first time that the Olympics were brought broadcast in that way. Previously, tapes would have to be shipped across and you'd see you know, events from three days previously. So it wasn't live. So that was a huge um, uh, change. And slow motion replay was introduced for the first time too. And time measurement was specified down to one one hundredth of a second for the first time. And they did this by linking the starting gun to a quartz clock and a photo finish camera even. Now, Simon, this year we're spending sending 116 athletes, I think it is, to Tokyo. What about the 64 Games? What was our participation like? Yeah, it was a different story in 64, of course, Pat. That year we sent just 25 people. Only one of those on the Irish team was a woman. Uh, that was Maeve Kyle from Kilkenny, who participated in the 100 metre and 200 metre sprints. 
Now, there was one Irish athlete who really stood out at the 64 Games. Well, who was yeah, that? The, the, the story that really intrigues me, Pat, about the Irish team from that Games was Jim McCourt. And Jim was a 21-year-old Belfast Southpaw, the so-called Prince of the Immaculata Boxing Club, still lives in Belfast to this day. And he won Ireland's only medal at the Tokyo Games. He took home bronze after a controversial 3-2 split decision by the judges in the semi-final, which allowed Valikton Baranikov for the USSR to advance. And I, I spoke with Jim's daughter, Kathy earlier this week, and she shared a really incredible story that resulted decades later from that contentious result. In 2007, just before Baranikov died, Jim received a parcel from him with a letter stating that Baranikov, that he'd carried their 64 encounter on his conscience his whole life because he knew that Jim should have been awarded the fight, not him. And he included in the parcel a boxing glove containing a golden spoon, which is a gesture of peace, apparently, in Russian culture. And he finished the letter saying that Jim was the best boxer that he had ever fought. Extraordinary, really. So in this clip, we're going to hear commentary from one of McCourt's famous wins at the 64 Games. The final round of this lightweight first series bout between Jim McCourt of Ireland, the Irish champion, Southpaw, from Belfast, and the Korean number 164, Bunnam Su, who so far seems to be uh, lagging on points. That at least is on my card. I wouldn't think there have been many boxers in this tournament that we've seen so far who've got better footwork than McCourt. It really is delightful. Great economy of movement. Jim McCourt, the Irish champion, after a very fine and intelligent bout, goes through to the last 16 of the lightweights where he'll meet Sawa of Pakistan. And that was the BBC's inimitable Harry Carpenter commentating on Irish boxer Jim McCourt at the Tokyo Olympics in 1964. Now, one of the most extraordinary achievements at those games was that of a legendary Ethiopian long-distance runner, Abibi Bikila. What was it that set him apart, Simon? Yeah, Abibi Bikila uh, will be a name that a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will remember, Pat. Uh, he was an Olympian with one of the most compelling personal stories. He'd arrived at Tokyo in 64 to defend his gold medal in the marathon from the Rome Olympics four years previously, where he'd really astonished everyone by triumphing barefoot over the 26 miles. And as an Olympian, he was, of course, an amateur, which technically they're all supposed to be. And he had kept his day job as a captain in the Imperial Guard of Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia. Now, in Tokyo, Pat, he did don a pair of simple running shoes, very different to the ones that they wear nowadays, I'm sure. And he managed to set a new world record, shaving over three minutes of his Rome time. But the most extraordinary aspect of his win, and this is almost unbelievable, was that he managed it just a few weeks after having his appendix removed. So as one of the major pioneers of long distance running, he really established East Africa as the new nexus of this incredible discipline. Simon Tierney from The Pat Kenny Show. 
Now, a tweet by Mattress Mick over the weekend has gained a lot of attention. Michael Flynn, the owner of Mattress Mick, is with us here on Lunchtime Live. Michael, just tell us about this tweet you posted. <laughs> I will indeed, yes. Um, it was a tweet about no bra money. What happened was, in our store there last week, a customer came in and she was dealing with one of my colleagues in the sales on the sales floor. And uh, we did a transaction. We wrote the docket. And as normal, we would ask, are you paying by cash or card? And she said, I'm paying by cash. And what she did then was, she put her hand inside her blouse and took out a wad of cash. Stuffed right? in the bra. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> so this took us all by surprise because we'd never actually seen this happen before. And the salesman didn't know what to say or do. But anyway, we took our money, obviously. But uh, <laughs> we uh, then had a little chat about it. And we said, we should, we'll should tweet about this or we'll put it out there. That this has actually happened. Wondering if it had happened to anybody else. And apparently it has happened in other stores and in banks and in other various type of retail outlets. This is the feedback that I have been getting anyway. Right. So no bra money is the sign yes. anyway, yeah. And That's I suppose correct. just, you know, with the the good weather and the hot temperatures and all of that, it could be... Yes. <laughs> hot money. <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to describe it. Um, yeah, but sure, there's obviously concern, like, but sure, COVID and hand hygiene and like a lot of businesses aren't even doing cash at the moment, let alone um, bra money, as you describe it. <laughs> well, I don't know about business not taking in cash. I, 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 I do see signs for coffee shops and stuff like that where card only accepted. But um, I would never say no to cash. But at this time, this was a little bit, as I said, different. And we put it out there, and it has received quite a lot of attention. In fact, it was reported in the Indian newspaper in the newspapers in India. It was right. on uh, Canadian um, radio stations, and which is no use to me because I can't sell mattresses to India. Or well, Canada. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's been some favourable and some. You know, not so favourable comments about it, but yeah. that's that's life. Yeah, I just you know. for people who haven't seen it, it's it's no bra money in black bold writing underlined, and then it says due to increasing temperatures and for our own personal safety, we will not be accepting bra money. Sorry for any inconvenience. Um, what was the I suppose the the flip side of the responses you got from people? Some weren't happy anyway, Mick. Well, no, some comments were you know. I would take money no matter where it came from. Other people said, you're right. Um, it's a little bit unhygienic. It's not right. It's not normal. And But overall, I think the consensus is that what we did was seen as kind of a, not, I won't say a joke, but it was put out there as a little bit of guerrilla marketing. Yeah. And, bit of fun. You know, bit of fun, yes. And that's the way I think people should see it. Yeah. And um, it's something different and it's, well, it's got people talking over the weekend. Well, sure. we're, we're chatting now. That's <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Mattress Mick from Lunchtime Live with Andrea Gilligan. On Tuesday, News Talk Breakfast explored greenwashing in the corporate sector. Here's Kira Kelly and David Robbins, the director of the DCU Centre for Climate and Society. 
the idea though uh, they have been accused within the corporate sector of things like greenwashing this idea that it's, it's a great marketing spin to, to, to I suppose portray yourself as climate friendly and ethical and all of those sorts of things but when you look at the actual figures and you drill down 20 fossil fuel com- uh, companies in the world responsible for one third of all global emissions since 1965 hard to see the bona fides for companies in that group perhaps coming out as climate positive? Yeah, absolutely. The fossil fuel industry has uh, has a problem because it doesn't have a good story to tell. Uh, ExxonMobil, for instance, from the 70s knew um, about the science of climate change and actually buried their own research and engaged in a, a long, multi-decades-long um, attempt to delay climate action. So some companies have you know, bigger challenges uh, than others. And a lot of them engage in, you know, two main types of, of greenwashing, of, of pretending to, to be more environmentally friendly they are, uh, than they are. One is to kind of emphasize the positive and distract from the negative. And a, an example of that is kind of saying something is, for instance, paper made from 100% renewable sources, emphasizing the good um, environmental aspect, but drawing a veil over maybe the chemicals used to bleach the paper uh, or other environmentally damaging practices. So sort of distracting, making a claim about what you're doing well, but distracting from the other stuff you need to work on. And the other one, the other main one is symbolic actions. So donating, to, you know, saying that X uh, percent of, of the cost of a product is going to, say, the World Wildlife Fund or something like that as a cover for just continuing to do what you always did. And we're quite good at that in Ireland, even at a political level of declaring um, climate emergencies and biodiversity emergencies and doing the big gesture without actually doing the work underneath. So there, there are a couple of things that, that people could could watch out for in, in corporate greenwashing. And I suppose lastly, David, just with regard to the whole uh, climate change and what corporations can do, if we are on track and we're hearing that we are in, in two years' time to have the highest levels of, of CO2 emissions in history, considering you know, around the world, emissions should have been much lower, you know, from from an industrial point of view because of the pandemic. Lots of economies went into sort of mothballs for a period of time. If that wasn't enough to make an impact, what do we actually need to do here in order to somehow facilitate change that might actually make a difference to climate change? Oh, Jacob, that's a big question. In a nutshell. Um, yeah, uh, the corporate sector actually in Ireland anyway isn't uh, w- the, a, a big emitter. We've got we've got transport, energy, and agriculture. We're not a big manufacturing economy, so we're not pumping a lot of smokestack emissions in into the air here. So the big systems of uh, of energy and transport and agriculture are the main ones that that we uh, need to change. Companies are going to be forced. Now, there's kind of a triple lock coming in for companies to do something about their environmental impact. Number one, investors like big pension funds are uh, demanding more climate action. The second one is that the kind of millennial generation and subsequent generations want to work for companies that have values and ethics that align with their own. And the last one, which is probably the most important one, is that regulators at the EU level and at the Irish level are starting to insist that people or companies uh, account for their carbon emissions. And they, they're kind of uh, described as scope one, two, and three. So not only the emissions they cause themselves by their own activities, but what happens to their products 
in their over their life cycle you know what's right. the impact of say a car from manufacture to when it's scrapped so there's a lot of, there is going to be a lot of pressure and there's going to be a lot of movement on this but i would say to people to just dig a little bit d- deeper okay. and make sure that the companies are are doing what they say yep. say they're doing some interesting perspectives are from david robbins from news talk breakfast i like how like we all like make new friends in cricket and it's just fun to play and whenever you do like a six or get wicket or do like some good great piece of fielding people will like um support you and then that feels good cricket is my favorite sport and I, it's a dream some of the children from Tyrrellstown cricket club describing what they enjoy about a sport which has spiraled in popularity in certain areas Cricket is now among the top choice of games to play by some young people living in Dublin 15. I met with Breen O'Rourke from Cricket Leinster, who is the development manager with Fingal County Council. He says more and more school children are becoming interested in the sport. Well, cricket has a long tradition in the Fingal area, but I think in the last 10, 15 years, we've seen new cricket clubs established in Tyrrellstown, in Castleknock, in Lucan and in Swords. So there are four new clubs all developed from, from scratch. But it's right up the pecking order there, like it's just coming after GA in early, is it? Yeah, very much so. There's quite a big Asian community out there. So a lot of the Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and Sri Lankans, they'd all have a big history in cricket and a, a big love of the game. So it's quite an easy sell out there. And the teachers in Tyrrellstown are, are very supportive. And uh, you're right, it's, it's, it's just behind back. Basketball and, and GA, I believe, as the most popular sport. What are the children saying when, when you come into the school? What is it about the sport that they like? I think it's just something different, you know. It's plastic bats, plastic wickets, softballs, lots of running, lots of throwing, lots of catching, lots of striking. Boys and girls in the class can play together. It's, it's non-contact, so it's a lot of fun. It's short little 20, 25-minute sessions, in and out. So what steps have Fingal County Council taken to, I suppose, give children more opportunities to play cricket? Well, up to now, we, we've delivered sessions throughout the Fingal area, but in this particular instance they have two sporting hubs one is in Balbriggan and one is Tyrrellstown so they support us Mitchell Thompson is the coach on the ground he's a local student what Mitchell would do on a weekly basis he'd deliver to around six different classes so that's approximately 200 children get uh, exposed to cricket on a weekly basis but hopefully next year we look to expand it even into more schools in the area. So third on the choice of sports to play with basketball coming second and GA remaining at the top. To see what it's all about I went along to one of the training sessions at Tyrrellstown Cricket Club to give it a go myself. Hi, News Talk and Rajesh. Uh, my name is Kumar Verma Rudarazu. The club was established in 2011 and um, since then we have been playing, uh, say, cup matches away from our ground because we didn't have our permanent ground. So Cricket Leinster also helped there. And how popular is it at the moment? It's very popular. Just to give an example, uh, we had, uh, say, till a couple of, say, three, four years ago, we had one team. That means uh, 11 to 12 adult players. So, and then we increased that to two teams. 24, 25 players. Now this year we have 60 adult players registered and 40 plus children registered for our club. So that's a great growth and there's a lot of interest. Our goal is to achieve community integration through cricket with the local people and ethnic groups. We have a good catchment area in Dublin 15 where along with Irish many ethnic groups reside. We'd like to see more children from schools nearby to come to our club. If any school-age children in Taylorstown or Dublin 15 area interested in cricket playing, so please do come by and uh, try a couple of sessions for free. And, you know, if you are liking the cricket, uh, we'll arrange uh, cricket uh, training sessions with the professional coaches. And how do people that play hurling manage it? Are they able to transfer some of their skills? Yes, it's easy. I have seen few children. 
it's easy for them to you know bear, you know play cricket because all you need is uh, eye and the ball coordination so you have bat in hand so it goes really well uh, they'll be like a good batsman if they come along here and we're standing here now it's a fine ground and we got some lovely summer weather so are you going to teach me how to swing a bat oh yeah definitely so why don't you try now and um, our player youth player uh, sai will show you how to bat and uh, bowl you're going to teach me how it's done yeah what's the best way to play so i'm learning from a pro here so you hold a bat with two v's in line and the stance is very important is it yeah you bend your knees and then just hope for the best yeah yeah yeah. So Josh, so you hit your ball now. Okay, uh, I'll give it a go. We'll do it nice and close. Beginner's luck. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Was that okay? Yes. That would make me become a member of Charlestown. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Yeah. So we'll uh, see you for the next session. I, I'll, be, I'll be lining out for training next week. Yes, yes, yeah. Josh. Yeah. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Before the break, we were just uh, speaking with Christophe Coupe, who's a, a linguist and he's in Dublin doing his, uh, his uh, doctorate, his, or his thesis for his doctorate uh, about Dublin accents uh, and the variety of Dublin accents and what influences specific accents. Uh, and uh, it's somehow it's a bit of a, often it's a bit of a detective story. Alan says, I grew up in West Dublin. I played underage Gaelic football for Dublin. None of the rest of the team believed I was brought up in Dublin. They all insisted that I had a country accent. Now, that's interesting. I wonder, like, where are, are your parents from Dublin or may have been from outside Dublin? Because you get that phenomenon as well, that a child can, you know, live on a street or in an estate. Everybody has one particular, more or less, one accent. But because their par- that child's parents have a different accent for some reason, they kind of... Uh, they latch onto that particular accent. Tony says, I didn't grow up in the city centre, but I live there now. It's remarkable how exact and pronounced the shift in accent is. The minute you cross the river, the accent changes massively and in a vast majority of people. Uh, so it's only what it depends if you're talking about the entirety of the north side or the south side, you know, that, that, there's obviously variety there. Uh, Sean uh, in East Donegal says the Derry City accent is one of the few traditional accents uh, here in Ireland, which always had an inflection at the end of a word or a sentence. There has always been there in Derry City long, long before the influence of US television. Uh, yes, uh, fair point, though I suppose also you could say that maybe about a Cork accent, that it might go up a little. It wouldn't be like an uptick, but it does, you know, go up a little bit at the end. Uh, Fergal, who's from Blackrock, uh, I don't know which one, says, my grandfather grew up in Newtown Park Avenue in Blackrock. That was obviously Dublin then, uh, 1903 to 1917, and told me he could tell a person from Blackrock and Newtown Park Avenue and Galloping Green by their accents. Uh, says, I well believe it. Uh, Colin says, uh, once heard that awful inner city nasally wine described as a million miniature lawnmowers. Colin's from Malahide, uh, so you can start your class war there. And uh, Paul, uh, also in Dublin, says, uh, uh, how many Dublin accents are there? Don't know. But Conor McGregor uses them all in one sentence. Indeed, he is a cunning linguist. From Moncrief. Now, this week, documentary on News Talk explored heart-related issues amongst young people. So I had lots of tests again on the Monday and then like couldn't really get out of the bed. It was sore, as you'd say, but like the tiredness was just unbelievable. And again, I wasn't really aware of on Monday that like my pump function was so bad or that things were as serious as they were. 
Again, I thought people were overreacting a little bit. I didn't believe that I was after having a cardiac arrest, you know. I, I don't think I was ever aware of, you know, for the first week anyway, as you'd say, that the situation was as severe as it was or as critical as it was. It was maybe Tuesday evening before they kind of told us she was out of danger. At that stage, we didn't know, like, what kind of a recovery Michelle was going to make. And we would be quite happy, like, that she'd be home and she'd be with us. She'd have her full brain function. And, OK, she might be able to tear around the place or whatever. But at the time, we would have been 100% happy with that, like, you know. As the week progressed, test after test followed with no clear answer as to the cause of the cardiac arrest. By the weekend, the severity of the events, seven days prior, started to sink in. For the first week, I think I was in a bubble, as you'd say, you know, like that I wasn't really too aware of what was happening. Um, and then on the, the following Sunday, um, Anthony Foley um, Munster were playing a match in France and he passed away. They thought it was a suspected heart attack and... I didn't think it was possible to cry for 24 hours, but I now know it is um, because I think when I heard that news, I think it hit me then. If the match had been on when he had collapsed, somebody probably would have been able to save him. Like if I had been at home, this could have happened to me in my sleep. If there was nobody with me, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have been there. So it was definitely a full week later before the severity of it all hit me as you'd say about how serious the situation was and how lucky how like exceptionally lucky that I was where I was when it happened we kept things as normal as possible for Connor he still went to creche every day and even though you would say we kept everything very normal for him you would see a lot of things afterwards where it really probably did affect him and where he'd be clingy where he hadn't been or he might come up or say something afterwards that you'd say, oh my God, you'd think at two and a half he didn't realise what happened. But he definitely realised that something happened. Like I felt I was missing out so much at home, you know, the way it's in like it was coming up to Halloween and Connor was um, like needed a Halloween costume and all this kind of thing that I should have been taken care of um, so that I suppose was was tough going but like when you're in hospital you just have to concentrate on getting better and I was to be honest with you I was kind of sick of it I was getting tested from top to toe but there was no answers we always want to know what's happening and I spent uh, nearly a month in hospital and when I was on my way home there was no definite answer of what was after happening but I think I just put my trust in you know, someone like God, I suppose, you know, that, um, you know, everything was going to be all right. From Full of Heart on Documentary on News Talk. So this isn't completely wacky, the idea that we can consume negative calorie foods, foods that burn more calories than are in them. Not, not, not exactly wacky. And, and the idea sounds very much like a myth. But uh, essentially, when you put food to your mouth and chew it, they are, of course, movements that require energy in the form of calories to perform. So uh, secondly, then your your digestive processes are triggered when you eat. That also requires calories. So when you factor it all in, the idea of a negative calorie food 
isn't too wacky. Now, it can uh, not sound far-fetched to some people. In the, pe- the way some people, I guess, uh, make it sound okay and make it sound like a, a, a realistic possibility that negative calorie foods exist is because they're low in calories to begin with. So most of these vegetables that I mentioned before contain less than 25 calories per serving. Fruits sometimes have, are higher in, in sugar than, than the vegetables and so far and are higher in calories. Uh, but most of them, fruits would still be under 70 or 80 calories per serving. Now, the big reason for the low calorie count for fruits and veggies is that they're mostly water. Celery, for example, is 95% water. So uh, drinking water, as I said, does burn calories, especially cold water. So maybe uh, eating something that's almost all water can burn calories too. So if if someone suggested that uh, a processed food like crisps or bars or takeaways or uh, things high in sugar and fat like uh, Oreos contain negative calories, uh, they'd be written off as a bit, bit of uh, delusional. But with natural foods like fruit and veg, it sounds a little bit more plausible. So um, yeah, don't go eating loads of Oreos because that's not going to work. Yeah, but we can't just live off a diet of celery though and, and expect the calorie count to drive down dramatically, could we? No, and th- and this is the thing as well. And look, celery's great. Dip it in your hummus, guacamole, a uh, bit, bit of yogurt dip. Um, but when we estimate how many calories a person needs, Kieran, there's another thing we have to take into account there, basal metabolic rate, that's BMR. So uh, this in- already includes how many calories we burn digesting our food. So while you might burn a few extra calories eating foods like celery or any of those fruits or veggies I mentioned, I mentioned the negative calorie foods, it won't replace your exercise. So you'd have to eat a, a lot, a lot of celery to get any sizable calorie burn. Instead, you're kind of eating foods like celery because they're low calorie foods to fill up on. So when you're full, you're less likely to go to things like uh, takeaways, like pizza, like crisps, like bars. So uh, you can't just live off this diet of celery. It's it's more in a in a in a snack kind of uh, snack kind of way. And already this BMR, basal metabolic rate. Uh, takes into account the, uh, the the calories we burn digesting food. So it's not the go-to. Uh, there's been some very hands-on research into this area, I understand. There sure has. Only the We only pick up the top scientific research on Factor Fable, Kieran, and, and yeah. uh, some people have done the hard work for us. Um, so scientists in uh, University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire uh, with the NHS over in the UK and the University of Warwick, uh, there was the presenter, Matt Tebbett, from uh, Channel 4's Food Unwrapped. They, they basically put him in a metabolic chamber that measured the calories ingested and burned while he ate celery in various forms over a period of 12 hours. Sounds like a, a fun experiment. Um, and he was fed celery raw and in a smoothie, which each contained 53 calories. And Matt burned 72 calories eating the raw celery and 112 while drinking the smoothie. So in both cases, he did burn more calories digesting the celery than the celery contained, which is quite interesting. Uh, not everyone agrees. Is that right? That that negative calorie foods though are are an attainable thing. Yeah, for sure. Like there was a, there was a study done um, in the Mayo Clinic in in, uh, in America that found the act of chewing gum, for example, burned about eleven calories an hour, and similar to digesting food. And um, there's a website precision precision excuse me precision nutrition. So they they, they were writing the protein takes the most energy to digest. So they got quite scientific. 20 to 30% of the total calories in protein are burned during your digestion. So if you ate 100 calories of protein, around 20 and 30 of them will be burned during during that digestion. Carbs then take the second most energy. So 5 to 10% of the total calories in carbs are burned during that process of digestion. And then fat takes the least amount of energy uh, to digest. Only between 0 and 3% of the total calories in fat are burned during that. But these calorie burns are so small, Kieran, that we're talking about that it is nearly impossible for a food to actually end up containing negative calories. So theoretically, negative calorie foods can exist, but 
I mean, the food would have to be extremely low in calories, chewed for a very, very long time and have a nutritional makeup that requires a high percentage of calories for digestion. So at, at around 18 calories per serving, celery, in some people's opinion, doesn't quite fit the bill. Terrific stuff there from Shane Hannan and Factor Fable. So during lockdown, did you take up more exercise or did you fall back in it? Or No, I was able to keep up my normal routine, like training in the morning, training in the evening time. I built my own gym out of scrap metal, out of concrete, anything I get my hand on. You know, I was looking at lads on Instagram building bars and I was like, if them drunks can come up with that, I can come up with something good, you know. So Old school rocky kind of mode. Like. Yeah, I had a lot of pallets and I had scaff bars with buckets on them full of bricks and I was able to squat them, I was able to deadlift them, I was able to do everything I could do in the gym. I built my own cable pulley system and stuff like that. It was a lot of time to sit around and think, so... You know, I just used what I knew from working on building sites and I put it together and said, right, we can make a gym out of this. And it did the job fine? It did the job absolutely perfect for me. I even had people knocking on the back door looking for snaky bicep curls and I said, look guys, you know, with my mum and dad being, you know, vulnerable, I said I can't bring anybody in, but it kept my mental health up to its peak. Like, you know, it felt brilliant I did through the whole thing. I do a lot of walking because I have to with the, with the two babies. Um, but actually, I recently went back to the gym as well. Um, I just found that it was great for my headspace to get out of the house and go and do something away from the kids. and so This is exercise in itself, pushing well, a double buggy. Well, that's it. I, I, like, as you can see, I, I, I do a lot of walking around with, with the guys, so um, probably would do, and I'd say, more. Are you counting your steps? Oh, yeah, I have my, my band on. I haven't done much now yet this morning. What, what are you on now? I'm only on 2,100, two but yesterday I think I did nearly 17,000. 17, and do you yep. have a target every day? or At least 10. Have to do the 10. Yeah, yeah I'm addicted, so. And then you can it. treat yourself to a... Oh, maybe, a snack in the evening maybe, or, yeah, or a small glass of wine maybe in the yeah, evening yeah. you know yourself there's a report out saying that millions of people are dying each year due to a lack of exercising do you think that will encourage people to live a healthier lifestyle mm, I don't know about that I mean what encouraged people in COVID I don't know time nothing else to do our, certainly our local park I noticed footfall is is so far down now it's so much it's even cleaner you don't have to pick up so much litter um, since COVID finished so I'm not sure that a stat would would necessarily change the way people act maybe the circumstances of COVID we had nothing else to do we had to exercise within two to five kilometers and we just did it every day but you think that that habit is kind of it's falling again like it was short-lived I do I do even in myself it is yeah my daily absolutely daily walk sometimes twice daily walk yeah yeah no that has that has happened you know all the things have encroached all over again I'm with you I think we've all gone back to the same same old even though we swore we wouldn't you know yeah yeah we have a group of hardy elfers like myself who cycle on Sunday mornings and last Sunday morning we cycled over to Borna Brina the uh, reservoirs over there get out get outdoors look after the mental health get outdoors do you think some people are falling behind or they've given up on trying to be healthy uh, no I, th- I think we probably all step back a bit we're all being careful we're all carrying these things around the masks and we're all been very careful and courteous and all the rest but I think we need to be courteous to ourselves as well and my worry about maybe other people it's just just the mental health aspect of it my advice to myself is just get out of the house and you'll be back on your bike now on Sunday morning back on the bike on Sunday morning in case you missed it with Susan Cahill a look back at the week on News Talk. Sophia Gray from County Meath, you're on a Fiat 500. Uh, you're about to take your test. Um, being from a rural part of the world, it, it's so important, isn't it, to be able to drive? Yeah, definitely. I started my lessons back in like last March, so I'm going to get to do it now, the test. So, so over a year? Yeah. <laughs> and how hard has it been? Chopping and changing of the lessons, stopping and starting for months. Best of luck in Thank the you. test. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> 
I'm having a chat with an auntie. Uh, your niece is getting her test. How do you feel about all the delays? Well, she's waiting nearly six months for her test. She applied for it uh, a year ago, and then she had to wait another six months because of the COVID. It's the backlog as well. I don't think they have enough testers because like, they're young and they want to have their test. Some of them are applying for jobs as well, and they need their license. It's been a bit annoying, to be honest with you, trying to get the full licence together, um, especially with work and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been a bit annoying already. So nearly there? Nearly there, yeah, nearly there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Having a chat with Anna Kenner, you've just finished your driving test. How did it go? Yeah, passed, so congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> and it was your third go? It was my third go, thanks to my dad for telling me that. Delighted, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Like I've loads of friends who are waiting on tests or driving instructors and that kind of thing, so it's tough. Hi Henry, I'm Alan Early. I'm the Managing Director of Airport Driving School, Ireland's most successful driving school since 1968. There is a huge backlog of um, pupils waiting on driving tests. The industry essentially shut down in March 2020. There was a lack of communication at the time from the RSA and a lack of direction, but they've certainly come through that process now. They have increased their amount of testers. They've hired 40 additional testers. They've opened pop-up test centres across Ireland to cope with the backlog. In, in the last 18 months, 90,000 people have turned 17. And it's a rite of passage now to get a learner permit and to get a driving licence to get on the road. That is adding to the already uh, backlog system that the RSA have. They are coping with it, they're getting there. It's probably going to be another 18 months of, of a backlog. But there's no backlog for truck testing, coach testing, minibus testing. There's huge opportunities in there. If you want to become a driving instructor, we have reskilled pilots and chefs in the last couple of years. Really? Absolutely, yeah. We have a pilot working for us at the moment that has looked at it, has been out of work for the last 18 months, and has come on board as a driving instructor. And it's fantastic, a fantastic career choice for him. How hard is it to get a lesson? We will prioritise people who have tests at the moment. The essential driver training is, is something that was put in place by the government. Pupils have to do 12 hours of lessons or 12 modules of essential driver training before they can sit a driving test. If someone comes to us and have already sat their 12 EDT and has a test pending, we will prioritise them within our system. We are probably looking at maybe another 12 to 18 months of a backlog, but we'll get through it. Alan, let's say you live in rural Ireland, you need to have a driving licence and you're waiting and you're waiting and perhaps you can't get to work. What is your, your message to them? I mean, what can they do? My advice to learner permit holders, uh, learner drivers at the moment, is when you get a test date from the RSA, is to contact your instructor or driving school immediately, as availability is quite limited. It's a very stressful time when you're sitting your driving test. You don't need to add to the stress of that by ringing around a driving school at the last minute to try and get lessons, to try and hire a car for the date. As soon as you get a test date from the RSA, which is normally five to six weeks in advance, contact your driving school. Woohoo! I'm having a chat with Amy Cowell. You've just done your driving test. Just passed, thank God. Congratulations. Thanks. How long were you waiting? For the test, I wasn't waiting that long because I went for the emergency test, both the lessons and everything were a disaster. Like, I'd done like five, then I was locked down, then another two, then another lockdown, so just spread out. A year and a half to get everything done, the 12 lessons. And you needed to get your driving test for work? Yeah. yeah. And what do you do for a living? I'm a lifeguard and a dance teacher. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so, real Baywatch stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you needed yeah, to have I do. a driving license. Yeah. So, you're her mum, how are um. you feeling? I'm delighted for her. 
It's been a long time coming. Lots of driving around that I've been doing back and forward to walk, so at least now she can drive because she walks in the um, Sports Ireland, so she was over with the Olympics training over there, so it was early mornings, late nights. So you were her taxi? I was. So now, <laughs> finally, she's got through that backlog. She's Brilliant. got her test. Yeah, I'm delighted for her. Henry McKean reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Friday, Brian O'Driscoll and Henry Shefflin went for a round of golf at Mount Juliet. Yeah, some guys get all the gigs. But like, you know, like you, look at, you look at coaches around the world, you look at someone like Ron Nogara, who's gone to New Zealand and France, and I saw him quoted during the, 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 or the week of the semi-final against Leinster, being asked, would you ever coach Leinster? And he said, as a player, I would never have dreamt of playing for Leinster, but yet coaching is a different thing altogether. So, not that I see him being a future Lencer coach, but he's left that option open. So, do you not see, you look at Eddie Brennan going um, to uh, another sure. county, um, you, you know, surely you must feel as though for a development, you only know Ballyhale, and now obviously you're at Thomastown, mm. but, you know, where, where's the harm in going and pitting yourself against what you know? You know, there's a lot of harm in it because my nephews are playing for Ballyhale. You know, my, my family are from Ballyhale. So yeah. I, I'm surprised to hear you say that about Rowan because I would have been surprised to see he would take on uh, Leinster. But me, Brian, I just wouldn't do it against my own. You've come from this massively successful environment and you have all these values. Is, is, there, is there anything concerning about how that doesn't fit into a smaller system, into a less competitive environment, um, particularly with a group of complete strangers, as you said. Yeah, I think I was very fortunate with Kilkenny, and then I was even more fortunate with Ballyhale, because like, we didn't lose a championship match the two years I was there. So I'm stepping into a team now that haven't been successful, and I suppose that is one of the vulnerabilities that I face, is that you, know, you mightn't be successful, and I know that is coming. And I know that there's going to lose more than you win more, but... Is that intimidating? Um, like going you... into an, that, an environment, you have this great reputation as a player and you put, you put it on the line again as a manager. Yeah, I think we're, we're standing over a putt, so this one is going to be intimidating, but it's, it is very similar. So uh, I met these, these group of players last December and I was very nervous. I was intimidated because I just don't know what they're thinking or what they're, they're expecting to see, you know. They're seeing Henry Shefflin come and he's been successful with Ballyhale. Is it all just going to happen very quickly? And I know that's not the mm. case. So, um, but I'm always, and even this, this morning coming in here to this, like, as you can see, I don't play much golf. But I think you have to be your authentic self. And yeah. that's what I, I, I do really come back to that. I've found that in my life now, Brian, is that, you know, there were stages during my career with Kenny where I wasn't myself. I was more concerned about what people thought about me, what the press said about me. And, and did you behave accordingly to what the, their expectation was? Um, I think sometimes, yes, but as well as that, I probably mentally and psychologically wanted what they wanted. So I pushed myself. So, you know, you, you be, play very well in an all Ireland semi-final and you're kind of, you know, you're branded up as this is going to be the star man and you put serious pressure on yourself then for an all Ireland final. And that wasn't me, you know. Was it not, no? No, it wasn't me, I, to a certain extent, but I was probably playing to the galleries a little bit and I was probably putting that pressure on myself, which brought its own issues and concerns for me because I didn't enjoy it as much at that period. Okay. You know, I just didn't enjoy it. 
So, because um, from the outside, you looked as one of those players. You know, when pressurised situations come along, some players bulk and run out the gate, and other players run towards that pressure yeah. and they invite it upon themselves and they think, okay, I run the risk of being the villain here, but they don't see the villain side, they only see the high side, yeah. the achievement where I'm going to actually get this done for us. Yeah. And it's not even wanting to be the hero, but just that anticipation and excitement fuels some people's desires. And you always came across as one of those sort of players. Yeah, and I, I did, Brian, but I probably could have enjoyed it more. I just didn't enjoy it. And I, that's what I think I was affected because of, of, um, of that pressure uh, I put on myself. Um, because I, was, I wasn't being myself, mm. you know, and that, that was the, the concerning thing for me, so. How did that manifest itself? Is, is that a sleepless nights thing? Is it thinking about it yeah, ad nauseum? For what, any what, of the GA followers, it would have been, I, I played an All-Ireland final in 2009, and I remember the Thursday before, and I just, my legs were just gone. I, I wouldn't have been able to walk around the golf course here. I had just gone, I, completely mentally. I just put so much pressure and anxiety on myself, I was just, I was just a ball of stress, um, and that's how it manifests itself. And you know, I was lucky enough; I was able to come around for the game itself. But I look back at that period and say, "Why, you know? Okay. Why, you know?" Do you look at the high achievement past and think that's unachievable in other realms of life, but you've made peace with that? Yes. Yeah. I, I, it's taken me a while to get there. Right. It really has. Like you, I, I wanted to try and be world class. At everything you at, do. Not at the next thing. Yeah, try and yeah, try and find that. It's a fix. Brian O'Driscoll and Henry Shefflin from Off the Ball. Okay, I'm going to leave you with now some screen time with John Fardy. Here is comedian, actor, and impressionist Mario Rosenstock. Have a great weekend. The film I've chosen, John, <laughs> is Barry Lyndon. Oh. Um, 1975, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and made um, principally. Uh, in Ireland. Yeah. And you have a personal connection to it. But just really quickly for, you know, younger listeners, I was born in 1975, so not everyone will be aware of it. But it's a sprawling epic, right? One of Kubrick's, I won't say lesser known movies, but just give us a quick idea of the plot. Okay. So um, first of all, it's, it's, it's made by what some people would regard as the preeminent filmmaker in history. Stanley mm -hmm. Kubrick. I mean, if you consider that, um, if you consider that Steven Spielberg and uh, other masters of modern cinema regard him as the daddy, mm -hmm. Coppola, etc., then you know how highly he is held in this regard. Um, he had just made 2001: A Space Odyssey, which, if you watch to this day, still stands up as one yeah, of the greatest absolutely. movies of all time. And he was looking for something else to do. He had made Clockwork Orange, the adaptation of the Anthony Burgess novel. And he was looking for something else to do. And he decided to do an adaptation of this epic sprawling novel by Mil William Makepeace Thackeray, Thackeray called Barry Lyndon. And Barry Lyndon is a really simple story about a young, stupid, naive fool of an Irishman who has ideas, who has, I think the, the word we'd use here is notions. He has notions. And he says, be Jesus, he's been like a little Michael Flatley. Be Jesus, <laughs> Mammy, I want to raise high in society. And she goes, you'll never do it. You'll never do it. But he uses all his wit and he uses all his charms to try and climb higher up the social ladder. 
years and years and years he tries. He travels abroad. He ends up marrying an, into, a, into a noble family. He marries a woman who has money. Her husband dies and she, he remarries her. And he climbs the ladder. And he climbs the ladder and he manages to get a title for himself and money. But his fatal flaws are gambling and the fact that he's a little bit silly and stupid and he keeps wanting to climb and he spends too much money and he comes crashing down to earth. And it's a, a fateful morality tale of, of greed and, and foolishness. And uh, it's a satire as well on, yeah. on, 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 modern, on, on mores of, 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 of greed and uh, avarice. And uh, so it's a beautiful, long, very simple movie to understand. It's the easiest movie to follow in the world. It's just, and, and, it's, and it's run by a voiceover who basically tells you what's happening as it happens. In fact, he tells you what's going to happen before it happens. Yeah. And that's not what the, the trick of the movie is. The trick in the movie is watching how what happens happens to this guy. And also the trick of the movie is the revolutionary way the movie looks when you watch it. You have never seen a movie that looks like this. Made in 1973 and 74, still to this day, you will not find a movie where the picture composition is as beautiful and as arranged and as premeditatively thought out as Kubrick did. He proves himself to be a master of his craft, of filmmaking and cinematography specifically, in this movie, Barry Lyndon, made I in Ireland. I feel like I'm talking to a film lecturer here on UCD. This is incredibly impressive, Mario. Well, I'm so enthusiastic about it, really, John. I mean, this this film does so much because one of the one of the one of the things about the film is if you watch it, um, it's one of Kubrick's less uh, fated movies. Yeah, it received it was a flop when it came out. Uh, it didn't make money, and it was regarded by many critics as boring, slow, pedestrian, and dull. Yeah. Since then. Nearly 50 years later, it has slowly and slowly eked its way up the ladder until now, by many of the world's sort of knowledgeable movie people, it is regarded as perhaps Kubrick's finest movie up there with 2001 and Pads of Glory from, from the 50s. Um, it's an extraordinary movie to watch in the context of even modern movies where everything has to happen so fast and every second of your time is filled with all sorts of things going on. This movie takes its time beyond belief. Every yeah. single, his, his, his ambition was for the movie to make every frame, every time you see it, every time you look at the movie, it looks like an 18th century painting. Yeah. That every yeah. time you lay eyes on a scene, it's an 18th century painting. Yeah. He shoots in wide angle lenses so that everybody is small there are in the pictures like uh, you would see in a painting and it communicates that idea that we are all just puppets we're nothing we're little we're just we're just little fools who wander around the universe and you can see the big world around us and how the big world controls us and how the big world will control Barry in his yeah. stupid little efforts to try and get more money he's still just a little puppet who the world will the world will decide what it wants to do with Barry when it's ready yeah and and it's, it's superb in case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.